What does the technology, as it evolves, what does the technology permit in the way of redesigning institutions in the economy to promote increased degrees of cooperation? I think that's the, the general research question that I think a lot of economists will find interesting. Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Hey everyone, this is Dang Du, co-host of Bit Cryptic. I'm sitting at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. I have the pleasure of speaking with the one and only David Andafaro. I hope I pronounced that right. He is an economist, the VP of research here at the St. Louis Fed. Now, in the recent years, David has emerged as a thought leader on cryptocurrencies and this novel digital ecosystem of blockchain and, and the new marketplaces popping up around there. Now, some would argue that central bankers have been reticent about speaking openly about the potential disruptive nature of this technology, but David has been really front and centered, engaging uh, with, with the public as early as 2014, as, as far as I can tell, before it was cool, before it was in vogue. And since the four years he's been active, the landscape has changed dramatically, really. But the, the constant has been David's intellectual force He's quite outspoken from what I've seen on social channels, being thoughtful about the broader conversation. He's quite active in Twitter feeds. I don't know about Telegram yet, but we'll see. In startup world, we have this saying that there's two key things of building a successful blockchain project. One is the technical development side, like coding and programming and designing the network. And the second thing is community development. And David has been uh, very active in, in the latter front, uh, holding meetings and collaborating on policy briefing, providing uh, background research and, and educational content to the broader public. And his most recent community dialogue, as I remember, was uh, there was a lot of fanfare in terms of, you know, there's a lot of engagement there and it was standing room only. Right. And so with that, David, thank you for having us. Thank you for sitting. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Dan. Thanks. So David, now... I want to read something to you real quick. It, this is from Fin Extra. It's a newswire source. Recently, they wrote that, and I quote, central bank's apathy for blockchain is waning, unquote. Now, uh, what I believe they're suggesting is that uh, central bank's attitude is not just waning, but they cited a few areas where central banks are, are actually uh, innovating or exploring this technology in a variety of use cases. For example, they, they mentioned the European Central Bank and the, the Bank of Japan published reports suggesting how blockchain may overhaul security settlement. The Bank of International Settlements have also been active analyzing and uh, looking at potentially how central bank digital currencies can, when you deploy, you know, what would be the implications for society, for the financial system and for financial stability. Question for you, since the four or so years you've been active, do you think the uh, central bank attitude have changed over time? I, I think uh, most definitely yes, right? I mean, you can just see it in the evidence that you see all the working papers coming out of all the various central banks. I, I think they've just gradually, you know, researchers have gradually come to the realization that what we're talking about here is uh, database management systems. 
and that you know, exchange is all about database management. Uh, digital currencies is related to database management. Uh, securities exchange is database management. And this, you know, slowly they've they've opened uh, their eyes to this kind of somewhat different type of philosophy to managing these databases, and 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 they're genuinely curious uh, where it all uh, all ends up. We're not entirely sure, but uh, definitely, I do sense a, an increased interest in the community. Now, that's interesting. I, I wanted to get your reaction on this. So the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, they're sort of a think tank associated with uh, Cambridge University in the UK. They do this annual global blockchain benchmarking study. And in their recent study, they surveyed a group of central banks, about 25, I believe, about their blockchain policies. And the survey showed that a growing number of central banks is actively testing blockchain for a variety of different use cases and the ones that come up would be around central bank digital currencies, new payment systems, regulatory compliance like anti-money laundering, KYC checks, and so forth, and uh, the plain own records management uh, efficiency type of use cases. And then they surveyed you know, the same group of central banks, and one of the respondents affirmed that uh, they'll deploy some sort of production-ready uh, blockchain use case in, in the next two or so years. Some of them you know, are rather optimistic that uh, this technology will have broad usage in the next 10 years. So that's the longer term. And including, you know, uh, one of the 12 regional Federal Reserve Bank, uh, the, the Boston Fed, as far as I can tell, they are building a proof of concept around uh, using the hyper ledger fabric, uh, which is a distributed ledger solution. And so I just uh, wanted to get your reaction on that. Do you, do you think that kind of it's an indicator of how much the technology uh, has evolved and does it affirm more interest from the central bank community? So I'm not sure how far it's evolved. I mean, I, I just what I detect is like what you just cited, uh, this, this increased interest in exploring the potential mm-hmm. in various applications. Mm-hmm. I've been a little bit skeptical about how the uh, application uh, would work in terms of um, a central bank digital currency, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I know, like, for example, the Bank of Canada has experiment project Jasper, mm-hmm. kind of in a limited kind of experiment w- w- among uh, large financial intermediaries to use a blockchain type uh, database management system. From what I can gather, the outcome was a, a little bit disappointing. And that's not to say that future innovations can't kind of make it work better. But I think that by and large, the applications that are, in my view, that are likely to to pay off are going to lie outside the realm of of central banks, central bank, blockchain based Mm -hmm. central bank digital currencies. I should say that, I mean, I think we may see central bank digital currencies, but they're not necessarily going to be powered by blockchain type of concepts. I see the applications potentially lying elsewhere. We'll certainly touch more on the central bank digital currency side. Okay. What about the public adoption? Talking about like, how do you gauge where the public understanding of this is right now? It's, so it's hard to gauge, right? Mm-hmm. Where the how the public feels because we don't really have polls around this like mm-hmm. traditionally in other areas because we have decades and decades of uh, public polling data. But I think it's interesting that folks like uh, Bob Schiller, who's uh, an economist at Yale, in a Bloomberg interview, uh, he indicates that this is more of a social movement, perhaps, more of a social innovation. And perhaps it's, it's more falling onto generational and geographic lines, even. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Coinbase study showed that almost one-fifth of U.S. university students own cryptocurrency. 
And this, this study by this large exchange, Coinbase, also showed, you know, it, it charts the rise of, of crypto education in the US. And they said that roughly 42% of the world's top 15 universities now offer at least one course on crypto mm-hmm. or blockchain. That's quite interesting, right? Yeah, <laughs> it certainly is. I hadn't heard that about uh, Schiller's comment, but I have to agree with it. I mean, this this notion of the whole the whole endeavor. I mean, think of the average person, you know, know very little about the details or or even the general concepts. Right. But I think that there's this feeling out there that something's changing, that there's something about this blockchain that's kind of different than what uh, the conventional sort of uh, institutions that we have in place. This notion that something's going to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. And then there's all sorts of indirect evidence that people, you know, can see the price of these cryptocurrencies, you know, they're rising sometimes very rapidly. And even if you don't understand what's going on, mm-hmm. it, it, it piques your interest. And, and, you know, Bitcoin, people predicted the demise of Bitcoin uh, several years ago. I mean, it's an unbacked, you know, digital currency. Mm-hmm. It's got to go to zero. Well, it's still here. And so, I get the sense that a lot of people, for a lot of people, even though they don't understand really the details of what's going on, they sense some sort of something's changing. Mm. And I think there is, because I think that you know, the way the way I, I characterize it is is Bitcoin blockchain is essentially a philosophy of decentralized and communal record keeping system in that broad sense. Mm. And that's very different than the conventional models we have today where we delegate the responsibility mm. of database management to a trusted intermediary. So this notion that we we can bypass kind of these conventional intermediaries and kind of manage things on our own seems very uh, appealing to a lot of people. So as you mentioned that there are novel aspects, but you also mentioned that there are some aspects that are kind of recycled, not so new. So can you provide a little bit more color. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is actually uh, something that is an historian, you know, monetary phenomena. It's kind of interesting. Uh, economists and uh, indeed like anthropologists, for example, have noted for, for a long time that uh, so-called primitive economies do not uh-huh. seem to use anything that resembles monetary exchange, at least not within kind of a tribe or a community. Uh-huh. They may use it for for exchanges outside of the community, but in in economic theory as well, a lot of economic exchange uh, can take place uh, without anything that looks like money. It's just basically, uh, some people call it a social credit system. But if you think about it, if you think about your own interactions within your family or network of close friends, uh, what we basically do is do favors for each other. We don't barter, you know, you don't. If an office uh, a colleague comes by and asks for a favor, it's not like you're going to barter on the mm-hmm. spot there. You, you do the favor, even if that person is not even in a position to reciprocate. I mean, as long as the rest of the office knows that you're somebody who's a team player, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're basically building up your reputation or your status within the group. And I've likened this group as cons- constituting a distributed ledger of, of brains, human brains that communicate with each other mm-hmm. through gossip. <laughs> and what actually happens within the group is recorded on a shared distributed ledger mm-hmm. that's located in our brains, and, and we update it through a communal consensus mm-hmm. process. You know, if that sounds familiar to you, I mean, you could argue that the blockchain philosophy is really kind of very ancient. It's like something we use all the time, this mm-hmm. idea of communal-based record keeping, mm-hmm. just to keep track of what everybody's doing in the group. Mm-hmm. 
and I argue in my writings that you know there's a social function for this record keeping that I won't get into the details now. Uh-huh. Just suffice it to say that it exists. We use it all the time in small communities. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I've argued that the basic limitation of this technology is it doesn't scale very well. It, uh-huh. doesn't, it works well in small groups, uh-huh. but it doesn't work well, let's say, at the level of the city. Our brains just aren't big enough to, to keep track of what a million other people are doing. It's too difficult to achieve consensus with right. a million different right. people that right. you don't talk to or don't communicate with. And the communal history has to replicate on everybody in that community. Correct. Yeah, globally. I mean, for this to work, I mean, basically, I'd have to keep track of, you know, a million, uh, millions of people's historical transactions in my brain. It's just not feasible. But what is now feasible is, you know, replacing uh, human brains with computer servers, replacing vocal communications with the Internet. And then, you know, advances in cryptography that have helped us keep these types of communications secure. And also, I guess, innovations in game theory, I would argue, too, that help the uh, achieving consensus on a much larger scale. Now, what we have, I argue that what Bitcoin is, is, is basically just a scaled up version of this very ancient idea where our, uh, the technology's been replaced by uh, you know, what's in our heads with computers and uh-huh. so on. So that's a sense in which I think people should maybe uh, you know just step back and, and, and think that if blockchain appears mysterious, and I think that for a lot of people it is, uh-huh. if you view it in the way I just described as kind of a communal-based record-keeping system, and if you understand that we use this type of system, at least in spirit, every uh-huh. day, throughout history. My hope is that some of the mystique will evaporate from this this notion of what blockchain is and what the spirit of this blockchain movement is. So this movement is an extension of the digital infrastructure that we built, uh, meaning the the internet. And so taking the physical, the analog to the digital innovation realm, perhaps these, some of these challenges Real challenges for sure, like scalability or whether it will survive a major uh, attack or uh, bad actors that could come from any pocket of the of the world. Perhaps those challenges are more of a concentrated in the software and uh, digital innovation. Perhaps it's only limited by our imagination and our ability to collaborate on in this type of open source programmable uh, ecosystem, right? uh, open source and networks, rather than before, decades before, if, if, if there's such a, a massive type of infrastructure collaboration, it would be a much taller order because we have to amass these physical resources. Yeah, I mean, just think, I mean, the internet is, is what's permitted this mass collaboration, right? Open source software to, to happen. Imagine doing this pre-internet. I mean, it would have been very hard. <laughs> so this is exactly why pre-internet days in particular, I mean, the institutions that we see around us have essentially evolved in the pre-internet mm-hmm. world. And these institutions like banks and uh, central banks uh, or just mm-hmm. other central repository and database management centers are the solution to the, the scaling problem that we as a society have uh, have come up with a solution which permits us to, to scale to live in cities, for example, mm-hmm. and still undertake exchange, even though most of us are strangers to each other. So 
Now with the internet, I mean, I think it has brought the possibility of greater worldwide collaboration on these communal efforts. I think. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. If, if you look, if you look at the data on open source uh, code uh, commits from GitHub, it's kind of like a network of collaboration with people building on open source projects. Yeah. It's quite astounding <laughs> to see the the spikes in in, in recent uh, years driven a lot by blockchain innovation. So it's it's quite interesting. So talking about grounds for uh, experimentation, I'm curious about the, your colleagues, economists or grad students, uh, future aspiring researchers of the areas where there could be uh, more research, more experimentation. Because one of the joke that folks have in economics is that, you know, it's said that an economist is a person who, when he finds something that works in practice, wonders if it works in theory. Correct. And so, arguably, something like Bitcoin, the blockchain, has been uh, operating independently for, say, a decade. And now we're sort of expounding on it, right? Do you feel like the economics profession, you know, what can it learn from this grand experiment? Because now that we have, we were mentioning, you know, this is open programmable money, let's say, and there's different forms of, of voting that could take place in these ecosystems. There's different governance systems, even something like liquid democracy can now be experimented on these digital networks. So not to mention smart contracts, right, which is part of the innovation from Ethereum. These are self-executing programs that can execute these uber complex, you know, uh, logic, anything from business and otherwise. And there you can even program private monetary policies into these networks. So there's everything from computer science, math, and uh, there's game theory, there's mechanism design, there's a lot of economics, there's a little of, of anthropology. So where do you think the fertile grounds are for, for research? I guess, if for aspiring researchers, you know. For myself, you know, I'm interested in as I'm an economist, so of course I'm interested in what, what, what motivates and sustains cooperation, especially in terms of trade, but more generally. And the problem with sustaining cooperation in groups is, is that essentially existence of evil. I mean, not, not everybody in the group can be trusted to behave intrinsically cooperatively. And so society, have, society has to develop institutional structures to, to help combat or mitigate kind of these forces where there might be members of a community who might want to free ride if they have an opportunity. Okay. They might want to fabricate certain information for their own private benefit at the expense of the community. We see that's a big problem. And so for myself, and I think the way economists should look at this is that what we're looking at here is a database management problem. And how do we ensure that this type of information is kept secure and accurate and it's not falsifiable? How do we prevent you know, bad actors from causing the system to not function efficiently? So I think one can view the emergence of monetary exchange in this light. So I think researchers uh, should be kind of cognizant of this as kind of one way to interpret monetary exchange. You know, the existence of banks, uh, central banks can mm-hmm. be thought of as an institutional response of kind of scale up this uh, institution of monetary exchange of broader scale that permits it to exist now on uh, digital money. So we already mm-hmm. have digital money. And so I think the, the, the broader research questions that economists should or that are likely to find attractive are just that, I think, is that 
the end of the day, what does the technology, as it evolves, what does the technology permit in the way of redesigning institutions in the economy to promote increased degrees of cooperation? I think that's the, the general research question that I think a lot of economists will find interesting. And as you alluded to, I mean, mechanism design, game theory, uh, I think all of these things are, are going to be of interest. You know, the, the idea of how do you achieve consensus in large groups of people? Again, we're talking about people who are expected to behave non-cooperatively. Uh-huh. And yet somehow we have to a- achieve consensus in a way that, that everybody can agree on the truth you know, in a way that you know, non-cooperative actors can actually agree on the truth. That's a very difficult problem to solve. Uh-huh. And I think these advances in, uh, in game theory, in the math, cryptography, are permitting us to, to come up with solutions to that, that the problem that are more robust. As for smart contracts, I'm, I'm interested that you, you mentioned that too. I look at smart contracts as these self, so-called self-executing contracts. You know, mm-hmm. one thing that's very interesting in economic theory is that much of economic theory already has smart contracts. Mm-hmm. It's all over the theory. And in fact, a great deal of effort in economics has been trying to dispense with worlds where we can rely on on smart contracts, self-executing contractual terms that are committed to by algorithm. Mm -hmm. For those readers who might want to uh, Google, you can Google Arrow de Bruce securities markets. Very common structure in economics. It assumes essentially a smart contract structure. Very elaborate contracts, no problem of enforcement, self-executing. I mean, De Bruyne won a Nobel Prize for this back. Uh, uh, he developed this theory in the 50s. Economists for the longest time have, have, have uh, struggled with this notion, saying, my goodness, this doesn't describe the real world. We have to like think about real world frictions that, I mean, real world isn't like that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of uh, research in economics is devoted to studying worlds where you don't have this sort of technology. These self, uh, these smart contracts, and and what I find <laughs> remarkable now is that the technology is is has evolved to the point where suddenly these types of smart contracts are becoming a, a more and more of a reality. Mm-hmm. The irony here is uh, if this theory, if if the practical application of smart contracts continues and is very successful, hugely successful, that economists might now have to go back to the theories we developed fifty years ago because they are now going to become more applicable mm-hmm. to the real world as the real world changes to accommodate that it becomes closer to the world that these economists imagined 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. I find that kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. I. So I think that's um, one of the hope that uh, we see from, you know, this experiment that's been in practice already that it can uh, inspire disparate areas of practitioners uh, can get together and really uh, have fruitful collaboration. It's, uh, I've, I've seen some projects already doing that where a startup would hire, the, you know, the, understandably, the programmer and um, product design, front engineer, et cetera, and uh, marketer. And then they'll have an economist or a network a researcher, R&D innovation officer. And so I think that definitely demonstrates this possibility of a very interesting um, interdisciplinary research. And so the fact that a lot of universities are starting to set up these classes would um, kind of help to streamline that research. 
Yeah, the, the interdisciplinary nature of this whole endeavor, I can't stress it enough. Um, just to think about in the context of smart contracts. I mean, it sounds like a good thing, but it's not unambiguously a good thing. You could imagine, remember, a lot of this stuff lives as a decentralized autonomous organizations. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, no way to, to, to directly regulate these, these bodies. They, they just, it's just computer algorithms living yeah. in open source code. Right. So you could imagine smart contracts that uh, promise delivery of, of token money in exchange for, you know, illegal acts, mm-hmm. murder contracts, for example, things like that. You know, uh, so, what is the morale? What's the morality? There's like moral issues here. Uh, you know, we can bring philosophers into this uh, discussion. Ethicists, uh, <laughs> sociologists, mm-hmm. political science, scientists, economists. I think everyone has a role to play here to contribute to this uh, discussion because it is. It's not just this narrow kind of cryptocurrency thing. This is something that could potentially affect us along many, many different dimensions. Right. There's a decentralized application built on top of Ethereum blockchain. It's a future betting mm-hmm. contract platform, essentially. It's called Augur. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I heard is that in, in the early days, someone deployed a contract to predict assassination and assassination. Right. And I think essentially the the lead of, of that project says that they likely would not be liable for providing a platform, a decentralized platform, and a lot of the onus would be would fall onto the people deploying the different types of betting markets. And because this would be the same platform that's allowing people to deploy different betting markets, like who would win the next presidential election. And, you know, you're you're trying to achieve a wisdom of the crowd type of effect. Mm -hmm. And so I I just found it uh, interesting connecting to to your comments. Well, you know, I mean, imagine a betting market on whether or not your house is going to burn down in the next week. Yeah. And imagine the incentives of that, uh, <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't know. These are questions people have to ask themselves. And in terms of legal liability, I don't know how who's going to hold legal liability, like I said, for a decentralized autonomous organization. Take Bitcoin, for example. It exists out there already. There's nothing we can do short of shutting down the internet, getting rid of it. And these uh, dApps are going to be available potentially out there that can yeah. execute the terms of whatever contract you can imagine. How do you stop that? How do you stop this? Uh, uh, people are just going to, you know, more or less anonymously be able to go out there uh-huh. yeah. and execute these types of contracts. I think that's a very interesting question sure. for, for society right. and gen policymakers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, consequential. Now, speaking of uh, economists, do you feel like your colleagues, I, I know folks like economists, like Paul Krugman, Jill Stiglitz, Bob Schiller, as we mentioned, all distinguished folks who are uh, very active and, and quite vocal on crypto. Nuri Rubini, Dr. Doom, is <laughs> also very vocal, <laughs> as expected. Now, these folks have expressed a lot of skepticism on a spectrum about crypto, especially Bitcoin, suggesting that uh, it will die, that uh, it's uh, reflective of a bubble, something something short of a scam even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think there there's any validity behind uh, their concerns? I mean, in your mind, like, what are they really concerned about? That's a good question. Well, I, I can't claim to get into their minds exactly, mm-hmm. but I mean, I could speculate here. And, and remember a lot of their comments, like Krugman in particular, I remember him coming out very negatively early on. Who knows? Their, their, their thoughts may have evolved mm-hmm. over, over time. Certainly mine has. My initial reaction to Bitcoin also was kind of similar, very negative. 
in the sense that, uh, you know, we have this kind of digital gold that, that people mine. In, in, in part, this is the fault of the people who come up with this, these phrase of mining, for mm-hmm. example, is not a descriptively accurate what miners are. I mean, mm-hmm. it took me a little while to figure out that miners are, in fact, uh, accountants yeah. who are getting, happen to get paid in the native currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you put it that way, that seems like a perfectly legitimate <laughs> occupation. Uh, some economists take a look at, say, Bitcoin in particular, which is a, what I would call a very hard money policy. Mm-hmm. You know, people have described it as digital gold. And people look at our experience with gold standards in the past. And many people argue, some some, some economists uh, dispute this, but I guess the consensus is that these gold standard regimes, by and large, for a variety of reasons, did not work out very well. And to the extent that these economists have that view, they're, they're naturally going to come out against something like Bitcoin mm-hmm. and its hard monetary policy. Um, as for others, you know, you can, you can well, you know, if we go back in history and you take a look at, uh, you know, the uh, provision of private currencies, this is, this is something that has happened throughout history all the time. Of course, pre-internet days, this was all in paper form or coin or whatever. So we have a lot of, a lot of experience with so-called pump and dump scheme throughout history. Oh, that's not a new concept. (laughs) So there might be another, you know, some of these people might be concerned with the hype surrounding this technology might might sway a gullible investors to part ways with a, with, with a substantial part of their life savings. We've seen this in the past. Mm-hmm. This happens all the time. So to the extent that you associate this endeavor with okay. kind of pump and dump schemes or whatever, they may, economists, like I said, I can't speak for exactly what they're thinking, but they might do uh, the whole endeavor in that negative light. My own view is we have to be aware of, of this. I mean, we have to educate. We have mm-hmm. to say, you know, local currencies exist in the United States today. Mm-hmm. There's the Ithaca Hour in Ithaca, New York, for example, that's been operating for, for decades mm-hmm. now. Uh, and there's many, many examples of provincial currencies around the world coexisting with the existing dominant currency. So in that sense, this is not something that's entirely new. It's just taking this kind of new digital form. If we, if our jobs as policymakers and, uh, and just economists is to educate the public, to say, listen, be careful. I mean, I know you can repeat this all the time, but it, it's hard. It's hard to combat. You know, mm-hmm. People get sucked in and stuff like that. So I think those bad elements are, are what attracted these, these economists, you know, initially mm-hmm. to make these negative comments. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they'd still continue to hold or be so negative if they viewed it, the whole endeavor from my perspective, which is just this kind of different kind of philosophy of database management that's kind of more rooted in a traditional consensus-based protocol versus our present system will delegate the responsibility to a trusted instrument. Mm-hmm. I think if we if we kind of push them in that direction, that they might become less negative on what the whole endeavor is all about. And at the same time, we can appreciate that there's always, you know, agents, agents on the sidelines trying to exploit people. But that, that happens all the time. <laughs> that happens in the stock market, too. So right. you don't shut down the stock market because bad actors. I think that's certainly appreciated. Um, the Taking a step back and offering a more uh, thoughtful, balanced view and keeping an open mind about a rapidly evolving ecosystem. I wanted to shift gears a little bit. I'm not sure if you've heard this phrase, the, institution, the institutionalization of blockchain, suggesting that there are potentially trillions of dollars from traditional finance sector on Wall Street sitting on the sidelines, mm-hmm. just waiting for the callus, the moment when it, it will flow in. 
So that there's that narrative out there. Bob Schiller also mentioned that the East Coast is less into this than the West Coast, Silicon Valley. But he also said it's a speculative bubble and <laughs> there's an epidemic of enthusiasm. I'm just curious to see what your thoughts are if, if there's going to be a flood of liquidity pouring in from the institutional side. And do you think that's a positive development? Yeah, well, I mean, these are people putting up their own money, taking bets. Uh, you know, like this, I thought this uh, epidemic of enthusiasm was part of what drove the American economy. You know, I mean, the expansion of the railways, you know, back in the 19th century, for example, were great speculative endeavors. You know, these, these projects always have an element of, of hope and expectation. I, you know, from an economist kind of policymaker point of view, you have, you have to ask whether or not, you know, people are putting up their own money. And, and who are we to say how you're supposed to be using your money? How you want to bet is up to you. From a perspective of the economist policymaker, I guess what you'd be concerned about is whether or not, you know, if things turn out badly, whether this has broader social repercussions, externalities in the parlance of economists. I think that that's, uh, it's very hard to say. I mean, I don't know, you know, this would require a lot of thoughtful stuff. So I think that on net, I would say that this is probably a good thing. You know, if, if investors see things that, I mean, we see this all the time, right? Venture mm-hmm. capital funds all the time trying to finance very risky endeavors. Most of them fail. But this is known, right? This is known beforehand mm-hmm. that most of them are going to fail. Mm-hmm. They make all their money on that that one out of, you know, 100, that kind of, that home run. Right. So to the extent that this financing helps that home run, you know, that uh, the development of whatever this this killer application yep. is, I mean, that, that, could, that could potentially... Uh, be something that could benefit, right. <laughs> like any technology, right. uh, could could benefit mankind. So yeah. there could be could benefit projects that succeed and right. provide more positive impact contribution. It also could misallocate capital, but on balance, that we just have to. Well, misallocate capital. I mean, in R and D, what does that mean? I mean, yeah. we okay, a bunch of researchers get paid. Ultimately, it's basically charity because they're not going to produce anything useful. Mm-hmm. But that's we know that going in. I mean, that's just part of the expense. And at least in the meantime, you're you're letting these programmers and developers eat and kind of live. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the people losing the money, presumably, are the people who can afford to lose the money. So that would be a, effectively a transfer of wealth from the uh, rich savers to the uh, developers and, and the people working in the yeah. space, the research and development teams. And a very small number of these teams are going to be hugely, spectacularly successful. Yeah. The investors are going to benefit from those. The developers who develop it are going to benefit. And the community at large, presumably, will benefit from this innovation. So how can this not be a good thing? <laughs> so where do you see this explosion of private cryptocurrency money going in a few years? I know that's hard. Um, I'm not suggesting to provide a forecast, yeah. but you know, a lot of the, the hundreds of coins that have been launched on platforms like Ethereum, uh-huh. they've conducted initial coin offering, and now they're being uh, traded on digital exchanges. So a lot of these coins, uh, a lot of these projects have taken tapered off, development has stopped, or the community interest around that network is lackluster. Um, And then there's this potential of whether true or not that central bank digital currencies or central bank issued digital currencies will be deployed. Could there be, could that spur some sort of a competition against the privately issued crypto? Is that a narrative that you see? Potentially. So this outpouring of new ICOs and new cryptocurrencies, again, I don't think this is something that's new. We've seen, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, private money issuances throughout history, they happen and their popularity waxes and wanes. So 
I see most of these experiments should be used as experiments. Most mm-hmm. of them are going to fail. Mm-hmm. But I think a substantial number of them are going to succeed. But they're going to succeed, most of them, in my view, uh, to fulfill niche modes. Like each community is going to have a specific, what is the definition of a community? It's a, it's a, it's a group of people with shared interests around okay. the globe. It might be a gaming community. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see these specialized tokens that mm-hmm. trade within a game, for example. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you could see specialized local currencies, digital or I don't know. But my guess is that most of these digital currencies that are going to be issued kind of blockchain style will survive only to, to facilitate kind of the niche kind of desires of the communities they're designed to serve. And that in terms of like central banks and their own initiatives of central bank digital currencies, this is kind of an interesting area. I mean, first of all, I've argued before, central banks do not need blockchain-based management systems. There's nothing more efficient than a centralized ledger, at least in principle, I should say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm speaking theoretically. Uh, there's always like things you have to consider from a practical standpoint. But you know what we're talking about here in terms of digital money is not rocket science. It is debiting and crediting accounts. I mean, this is debit, credit, debit, credit. This is not rocket science. And so uh, Fedwire, for example, which is a a, a centralized ledger ledger operated by the Federal Reserve Bank of of, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, you know, there's like, I think, $3 trillion exchange every day. And it's done at very low cost. It's a real-time gross settlement system. I mean, if if you have trust in in a centralized intermediary to do the bookkeeping, nothing beats that in terms of efficiency. And so I've argued from that standpoint, if, if we do see central bank digital currency, it's likely going to happen on a standard model, a central ledger maintained by a trusted intermediary. Where I see kind of things like uh, blockchain kind of entering the picture is, you know, it might be even in this world that I've just described, very difficult uh, to do cross-country payments. The banking sector around the world is not as interconnected as, as we would like. And so sending money to your friend overseas might be very difficult through the okay. conventional banking system. Remittances, small payments. Yeah. Okay. You know, Western Union or stuff like that. Right. I mean, charges. Yeah. Uh, very hefty uh, fee. Uh, yes. Hefty fee. And so one could imagine, you know, uh, protocol like Bitcoin is serving as kind of a vehicle currency, what economists call a vehicle currency. So uh, how would that work? It would, you know, it would work like this. I mean, I would export to you a product, for example, and, and I'd want you to pay me. But of course, you, it's going to ca- take 30 days for the payment to reach me through this correspondent banking system. Or, you know, it's, and it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And I'll say, export the good to you. I'll price it to you in US dollars and you pay me in Bitcoin. So I get my, I receive my payment in, in what, 10 minutes or something like that. And then I can convert it at a local exchange for U.S. dollars. Very, very, very rapid. So something like these, uh, you know, the Bitcoin or something similar like that, I see could potentially play a role in international payments to the extent that the incumbent banking system doesn't innovate for whatever reason. So who knows what's going to happen there? I see one of two things happening there. Either the technology like Bitcoin is going to motivate the banks to innovate, uh-huh. to improve their payment system uh, in a way that it competes blockchain out of the space or blockchain or blockchain uh, might some sort of blockchain application might find a niche there to facilitate certain types of payments across people who aren't well connected in the world basis well then thank you for providing that thought-provoking perspective so we want to end on a letter note some of our listeners have sent a small list of questions Ooh. to see how cool you are as a central banker hope you don't mind okay so what's your favorite coin of all time out of the hundreds uh-huh. that are out there well I mean I have to go with the original bad boy Bitcoin, right? I mean, uh, yeah. Spot on. Now, on top of your head, 
Name the top five cryptos by market cap. Oh, okay. Well, I would say Bitcoin is number one. Ether, yep. number two. Litecoin? Yes. Oh. <laughs> it's uh, depending on the day. Yes, Litecoin. <laughs> it depends on the day. Okay. okay. I don't know. Monero? Uh... There's Ripple. Oh, Ripple. I, I don't count Ripple. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Bitcoin Cash, which ah, forked right, right, right. from the original Bitcoin. All right. Next one. Who was the first hip-hop artist to create his own coin? Oh, is that uh, Kanye? Fantastic. Very impressed. Is that uh, true? Yes. <laughs> wow, I don't it's, know why uh, I know that. <laughs> it's sort of a trick question. The, it was called Kanye. It was inspired by the rapper Kanye West. The script uh, was uh, eliminated. It was demolished after Kanye said, look, I didn't want this to be created in the first place. So that's the end of that. <laughs> Last question is, which rapper, which hip-hop artist sang this verse? Remember everybody used to bite nickel, now everybody doing Bitcoin. Multiple choice. Snoop Doggy Dog, Eminem, or Will I Am? Oh, Will I Am? Close. Ah. But no, it would be Eminem oh. in his upcoming new album, Kamikaze. So, David, uh, we give you a passing score on your Kunis, but a phenomenal score on uh, technical capabilities of blockchain arguably is much more important, of course. So, that's uh, David Andafaro. <laughs> Economist, uh, Vice President of Research at the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Thank you, David, for your time. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Thank you for listening to a BitCryptic podcast. A BitCryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep it cryptic.